The Business of Biotech is produced by Life Science Connect and its community of learning, solving, and sourcing resources for biopharma decision makers. If you're working on biologics process development and manufacturing challenges, you need to swing by bioprocessonline.com. If you're trying to stay ahead of the cell or gene therapy curve, visit cellandgene.com. When it's time to map out your clinical course, let clinicalleader.com help. And if optimizing outsourcing decisions is what you're after, check out outsourcepharma.com. We're Life Science Connect, and we're here to help. Within about five minutes of conversation with Protalix, Chief Financial Officer, Al Rubin, I learned that he doesn't bite his tongue about the rigors of biotech business and finance management, which is precisely why I'm eager to talk with him on today's episode of the podcast. From commercialization deals with big pharma to being about $50 million underwater to swatting away the day trading armchair quarterbacks on stock twits, Rubin's seen a few things and he's developed more than a few opinions. I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech. And on today's show, you're going to get a front row seat to a discussion with a biotech CFO who knows how to put on the blinders, shut out distractions, right the ship, and set the course to favorable financial waters. Bringing his years of experience in the CFO role at Teva Pharmaceuticals, Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics, and now Protalix Therapeutics, I bring you Al Rubin. Al, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, I'm super happy to have you. Um, you know, and and I want to start. We're going to get to know you a little bit and, and some of your backstory here uh, shortly. But I want to start uh, with just some some backdrop on who and what Protalix is because you're a your unique company uh, in in the context of the business of biotech. We typically spend our time talking with uh, new and emerging biopharmas who haven't uh, seen an approval yet. And Protalix, uh, in fact, has uh, had had a couple now. Uh, in fact, it's the first company to gain FDA approval for a plant cell culture express protein. So just to kind of set the backdrop for who Protalix is and, and what it is to set up this conversation we're going to have about financial management and your role there, just tell us a bit about the company and, and that very unique product. Sure. So Protalix was founded the, uh, almost 30 years ago in 1994. And as you mentioned, it's the first ever company that gained FDA approval for a unique ProSelex platform. The platform, basically, we express complex human protein through plant cell suspension. In 99.9% of the uh, systems in the world, they express complex human protein through mammalian cells, which, which is called CHO systems. Uh, yeah, we do it through plant cells. Uh, yeah, as always, you have advantages and disadvantages, but I think that the uh, the uh, most uh, standing out ones uh, is obviously the cost uh, of setting up such a uh, production plant. Uh, we're talking about a fourth and maybe a fifth of the uh, cost of setting up a uh, CHO system plant. Uh, yeah, no risk of our contamination. We just came out of COVID. Not even. I heard that there's like a... Uh, a new version of COVID somewhere in the UK. Mm. Uh, we have zero risk of our contamination means that the uh, plant viruses cannot be transferred to human beings, obviously. This is the reason that they, uh, through COVID, we worked like 100% utilization of the, uh, of the plant, uh, yeah, of the production plant. And they, uh, I think that the uh, ease of use, we manufacture at room temperature, 
no need for closed loops, clean rooms, everything like is in regular rooms. We take polyethylene bags, plastic bags uh, of, you know, hundreds of liters and you simply uh, express the, uh, the complex human proteins and it goes all the way up and downstream till you have this little 20 milligram value. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had uh, I've had uh, companies on, on the show who are earlier stage, obviously, like I said, uh, no approved products, but who are working with uh, plant based cells, um, tobacco plants, moss. Uh, is there a particular plant that Protalix is working with? So the first approved drug, as you mentioned, we have two approved drugs. One of them is Elizo, that was the first one for the treatment of Gaucher disease. This is based on carrot cells. And hmm. the second one, is a uh, tobacco cells, Zel Fabrio, the uh, drug, the treatment for Fabri, which is based on BY2 tobacco cells. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Well, mama always told me to eat my carrots, but she 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 warned me about the perils of tobacco. So it's amazing what we can do with modern science. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to get into this conversation around, uh, you know, financial management. And last time you and I spoke, uh, the, the conversation kind of started around, a frustration with with share price, uh, you know, and and here we are with a a, a company that's got um, a, a couple of clinical successes. Um, you've had obviously scientific success that led to that, uh, and yet your share price doesn't necessarily reflect uh, that success. Frame that up for us. What what gives? Hey, um, so that that's the billion dollars question, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we, we'll, we'll spend some time also, on it then. <laughs> yeah, we find it also challenging to um, explain to ourselves, to the board, and obviously to the investors. And and you know, if if I had to frame it, I think that you know I, I would just mention I think three different aspects of of obviously it's a complicated you know discussion and analysis. There are various reasons I can blame the markets, the NBI, the XBI. I can blame the whole world and his mother, but you know, looking inside into the company, I think that three things really stands out. A, the company has its history, and you can wipe it out. The company at pick, you know, was traded at the billion point two, a on the back of the uh, approval of the first drug in Elizo after signing with the uh, the commercial agreement with Pfizer, and I think that they evidently uh, the company didn't deliver. And you know, without getting into the details, obviously Pfizer doesn't sell. So, you know, 40% royalties of a zero stays a zero. And the company went into financial distress and took debt in the form of convertible notes. And yeah, slowly but surely, my uh, welcome present as a CFO, I got the company at the $15 million market cap. So we let down plenty of people, uh, probably not only let down, but also pissed them off. Mm-hmm. So I can't blame them. That's first. Second, I think that, you know, given the... Uh, First experience that our investors had, hey, the proof is in the pudding. The fact that, uh, you know, we have a second approved drug, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., in Europe, uh, is very exciting. As you say, clinical success, uh, yeah, which should be, we should be proud of, and we are. Uh, yeah, but yet to be proved on the commercial side. And we picked Chiesi. We think that they, uh, they are like a very good partner, very committed one. They put a lot of money, uh, you know, on, on stake here. Uh, and uh, they're starting. Uh, they just launched in the U.S. and they, uh, they are launching now in you know several countries in Europe, but they will take time. And I think that the investors and you know looking at statistics, companies with one or two products after approval, the share declined anywhere between forty to fifty percent because people need to see now the proof is on the company until you really show some sales. 
And I think that's the, the, the second factor. The third, I think, is also the mix of the investors. I, um, you know, we did the uh, secondary offering in 2021 with Bank of America. We had all the hot names, Van Rock and Vanguard and Baker and Munishi and Perceptive and, and BlackRock. Uh, yeah, and once we uh, got the CRL, obviously, they all you know sold the shares and we were left with retail. Some of them are very loyal, very sophisticated, but some of them are not. And some of them are making their 10, 20 cents and they simply dump the share. And when you have 95% of your investor base is heavily, you know, relayed on, on, on retail, obviously it's very difficult to push the share. And that's what we're struggling. Nevertheless, you know, we're trying to manage not only the share price, but also a company. Yeah. And we brought the, the drug to the finish line. And we're going to keep on doing whatever we can do and whatever, you know, we have in our power. Yeah, uh, to push the share price up and uh, maximize the shareholders' value. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what what is within your power? Uh, you know, you and I think of the three things that you mentioned. I think, I mean, my my very my very simple take on it would be the two of them. Two of them feel like there may be some levers. Uh, dials, buttons you can push, pull, and and turn. Uh, the 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 commercial proof one. I mean, I'm, that just may take time. Although you know, there's a solid effort behind that too. So let's let's take each one of those and maybe just give me some thoughts and kind of put yourself in the position of you know a seasoned CFO who's maybe giving some advice to a CFO who who might face these these same challenges moving forward. The, the history, overcoming the history of a company that has had its fair share of struggles and. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that turnaround in a minute too. Um, what what do you feel like you and the other you know C suite uh, director level employees at Protalex uh, have to offer to adjust or change course of of sort of that historical perception of the company? So that that's a good question. You know, we uh, there's a verse that the uh, teamwork makes the dream work, <laughs> yeah. and I truly believe in this. And I think that they, um, uh, you know, I joined about four years ago, and the Dror uh, Bashan, the CEO, also joined about the same time. We joined together, and the uh, I think that ever since we joined, we really got everybody to buy in to the change and the turnaround. It means that you know, a you have to act as an elite. You know, unit like the seals, not the troopers. Not that God forbid I have anything against the troopers, but you know, a small biotech, you need to act as if you're a small, you know, special unit in order to get you know the the, the targets and the goals done. Uh, yeah, it means do more with less. It means pay attention to the budget, but not only the budget, but what is the short-term, long-term objectives that we are trying to achieve. Secondly, I think that you all have to be connected means the entire management needs to be on board. You have to see, uh, you know, really the same things, see through, work out the the, the challenges. And there are not always, you know, agreements. There are also disagreements in the C-suite. But yet we are in the same company and we have the same goals and targets to achieve. And we need to learn how to work together to achieve those targets. uh, I think as a, you know, Trying to um, look from a seasoned CFO and mentoring like a younger CFO, I think that you know it's all about hard work. And when I'm saying hard work, is 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 also smart, not only hard. My grandmother used to tell me you can work you know around the clock, but if you work not in a smart way, let me put it in this way, so you're going to keep on working without getting anywhere. 
you have also to work smart in a smart way. So I think that, you know, if you have goals to achieve, look at the ways that you can not only shorten the time, but also get it done in a way that you'll have like the 10, 20% cushion there. If something goes wrong, you're still on track. You're not off track. And obviously the legwork, I think that, uh, you know, we've had both Jor, who's by the way, actually in Boston, attending the uh, 43 annual uh, uh, growth conference of Canaccord. Uh, yeah, it's a legwork. Working with investors days and nights, I think that we've had over 200 meetings in those four years, meeting high net worth family offices, retail institutionals, bankers, analysts, just name it, VCs, specializing VCs, generalists, just to make sure that you raise the awareness. And evidently before the approval, the share spiked from sub buck to 3.5. True. The share went down, and I think that they uh, again looking at yesterday's trading, uh, it wasn't like you know half a million shares. It was like in the many millions of shares that were traded yesterday on the back of the a uh, second quarter reports that we just filed yesterday. And I think that investors are waiting and they're sitting on the sidelines to see if the company is really going to pick up and ramp up the sales. Once we do, and gradually, I truly believe that we will show investors that over time, this company is going to go back. I can't promise to be a billion point two, um, you know, dollars company, but I can truly say that, you know, it's not a $136 million market cap company. We're not there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I want to jump to the investors. That's a beautiful segue. You teed that up just, just in a lovely way for me. Al. Um, what control uh, do you have over your investor mix? And I guess a more pointed question would be what control do you dare exercise over your, over your investor mix? Like if you were going to point to that, uh, you know, of those three challenges that you mentioned, if you're going to point to that one and say, well, there's something that we might want to wrestle to the ground here in terms of your investor mix, what would it be? Uh, I think that what we're trying to bring is really more institutional. It's not that we have anything against retail. To the contrary, they supported the company and some of them are true loyal investors of ours. Some of them are like holding this share for the past 10 or 11 years. And they've been at 120 and they went down to like 15 cents mm -hmm. uh, pre-split. Uh, and, and what we are trying to do really in order to maximize the shareholders' values to bring those strong, solid institutionals that are not just going to join the party on the back of a secondary offering because they're looting everybody to death. That's very easy. I go out there at current pricing, I issue $40 million, I wipe out the retail entirely, and I bring institutionals. That's not what we're trying to do as a responsible management. And, and we know how to be thankful to the loyal uh, you know, investors who stood by us. Uh, during the challenging times, what we are trying to do is bring long-only investors through the NDRs that we're doing, just buy long in the market. And, and if and when will the time is going to be right in terms of the share price, the volume, and the right opportunity. If we'll have the right asset that we'll be willing to acquire, I guess that that's going to be also another point of change that we can bring some very strong institutional investors through whatever. It can be a pipe. It can be a secondary and and also gain, you know, analyst coverage. I think that, you know, another point that, you know, I, I forgot to mention earlier, because I find that retail doesn't really pay attention to this, but the more sophisticated second, third tier institutionals, and obviously the first year, they also look at the research and the fact that we didn't do an equity offering other than the one in 2021 with Bank of America. We have coverage 
only by HCN right and they are benched because we have you know a live ATM not that we're using it yesterday we said you know out loud that they we have no needs for a uh, on near term needs for cash a, uh, nevertheless it's up and running and, and and it's alive so they can't really cover us we have Zach's uh, we have John from Zach's and and for you know taking people like 3i and Serato and Bain and RA uh, their first question second question who covers you so obviously, slowly but truly, we hope that we're going to be attractive enough. That's one of the reasons we are meeting those, you know, analysts, research analysts, uh, that they're going to start covering the company even without doing a deal. Yeah. Uh, due to the sales, our positioning in the market, you know, you can't ignore the third drug in the Febreze space. Uh, the, the first two were approved in 2001, 2003. You're talking about 20 years that nothing got approved in this field. And all of a sudden there is one. Uh, they can't ignore us. So yeah. even if they're going to just mention that to us as part of another report that they're writing on Fabrizyme or or a Replegal or, or Amicus, uh, yeah, I guess that they, uh, you know, that the uh, that's for us. It's important. Yeah, I want to jump back to that that middle point, the commercial proof point that that you mentioned. That uh, you know, it obviously impacts share price, and, and I want to. Make it make it clear to the audience that th- this uh, this scenario that I'm going to present to you happened prior to your uh, your joining Protalix, but um, but it speaks, I think, to this commercial proof, like right? the the impact of commercial proof. Uh, so before you joined the company, uh, Protalix signed a commercialization agreement with uh, Pfizer on that first approval to treat Gaucher, Gaucher disease. Um, and I got the sense when you and I spoke last that you were less than satisfied, perhaps that you thought perhaps that uh, product was was under underperforming its its potential. So, um, one is is you know would you say that's the case? Is that true? And two, uh, to do it over again, what might you do to do what might you do differently in that commercialization effort to I- improve its performance? So first, you know, uh, I'll address your first question. Yes, I think that, uh, you know, evidently we have in Brazil, it's the only market that we're left with. Don't ask me why. It's the most, you know, remote place from Israel, culturally, mm-hmm. distance, whatever. Uh, and, and we have something like 25% of the market share. So evidently it's not Diet Coke and it works. And the drug is like similar to Serazyme and Vipreve, the other two, you know, competitive competing drugs. I think that, you know, and, and I'm not here to criticize Pfizer, God forbid, but I think they're coming from a big company. You were mentioning, you know, my, my, my background coming from Teva. I think that, you know, at the giant monster like Pfizer, when something falls between the cracks, it simply doesn't fly. And when it doesn't get the right attention and, 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 and the right eagerness to make it a successful launch, so it's not. And evidently, they're selling very little. Uh, even the markets that we, you know, handed over to them, yeah, uh, they didn't maintain even the percentages of the market share that were handed over, and they have their own reasons. And again, I'm not here to criticize, but I think that they, uh, this could have been like a completely different story. And the the success, the clinical success story, could have been followed by commercial success. Uh, hopefully, that's going to be the case with with Fabio. To your second question, what would or could have been done differently. That's like, you know, sliding doors. Uh, you can never know. Uh, yeah, back then, we had offers on we, the company, before my time, had offers on the table from a um, a competing offer from, from Teva. 
Uh, and you know the uh, the down payment was different. The uh, royalties were different. And and again, it's not that I know if Teva would have done a different job, but I think that they uh, you know maybe f- going after the giant partner is not always the right solution. Maybe looking for somebody who's smaller, but 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 hungry and and you know starving for success. And and you're gonna work closely with them, and I can you know those about, you know past four years working with Kiesi, I can tell you that the eagerness is there. They are like fully committed. They are dedicated. They are doing everything in their power on all fronts, the regulatory front and the commercial front and helping us, you know, behind the scenes. And I think that, uh, you know, by Giacomo Chiesi himself, who's the head of the global rare disease, he uh, was invited and he presented in our uh, investors event late June. And I think that they uh, showed their commitment to the success of the Afabria launch. And uh, let's all hope that they, uh, it will be uh, even more successful than we think. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Um, all right. I think I have one more, one more question that, uh, you know, paints the, paints the bad news picture, but it's a good, it's a good point to turn pivot the conversation towards the positive. Uh, and that is when you joined the company four years ago, it was pretty much underwater. You had, uh, I think you mentioned that you had like $8 million in cash and $58 million in debt. Um, so well, I've, I've got a few questions about that. The first one would be like, why would you take that job? <laughs> That's a good question. I was asking myself <laughs> this question for the past four years. Believe me. Hey, uh, I'll tell you the anecdote. I was in New York. I attended the BioCEO conference as a CFO of Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics, and I'm getting a phone call from Tel Aviv District, and I pick up the phone, and on the other line, Mr. Shlomo Yanai, who was the CEO of Teva, when I joined Teva, obviously, uh, yeah, and he asked if I have time to meet him, and I said, of course, why don't we meet uh, on Broadway somewhere? Obviously, he didn't know that I'm in the States, and he asked me to meet as soon as I'm back, and I met the guy as soon as I landed, and he told me about a company with a great story, with a success story of one approved drug, obviously, unfortunately, a commercial failure, but a great clinical success with second drug on its way. Amazing team, highly, you know, experienced and and knowledgeable, great culture up north, you know, in the northern part of Israel. And the only thing which is missing is leadership, Knowing your ways in the on Wall Street, the financial, like you know, institutions. And that's what they're looking for. Somebody like to really help the newly appointed CEO uh, back then was Jor Bashan, uh, to really turn around the ship. And I'm not shy or afraid from taking challenges. I'm not known to be that shy. I'm a redhead, although it's hard to hard to see. But they uh, and I said, you know what? Sounds like a very interesting story. And and truly talking to Fabri patients and their families, I said that that might be not only like on the professionalized side, but it's also a challenge to bring this drug to market for the patients and their families. And it's not that there are no treatments. There are. And I'm the last one to speak, you know, to uh, uh, speak about them. But I think that they, um, this drug, I thought that has its own uniqueness and I wanted to really bring it to the finish line. And I took the challenge 
I, uh, again, I'm not going to tell you that they, uh, I cursed myself a thousand times during those four years, <laughs> but uh, retrospectively, uh, I'm proud, so proud and happy that I took this challenge. And not only because we got the approvals, which is important, it's very exciting to be part of you know, a company second approval. Uh, we happened to be in the States and uh, we met the bank and, and we got the a notification from the FDA that it was it got approved by the FDA in the middle of the meeting. And we obviously stopped everything and started celebrating. Mm -hmm. Very exciting yeah. times, but it's also on the personal level, seeing the success like in your own eyes, how families and patients and physicians are are extremely pleased with this. And yeah, it makes me feel, I think, satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh you know, I mean, obviously the turnaround story, I, I, I'm, I'm sure the approval plays into the turnaround story, but th this company has, this company had already proven that an approval is not, not you know, is not a, an automatic forebearer of, of success. Um, so there's got to be more to the, the turnaround story than, than just the approval. And I'm hoping you can share some sort of fundamentals of your approach that helped turn that ship around and navigate it into a you know, a, a profitable, into into more profitable waters. Yeah, sure. So, I, a, I think that the fact that uh, yeah, you know, I, I I know Drawer for eleven years already. We worked together in Teva. I think that you know, knowing Drawer and under his leadership, the fact that he got everyone to buy in and and he put all the C suite next to him, and we're all. You know, like running towards the same goal and, and 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 striving to achieve the same goals, that helped a lot. Putting things in order, the organized way and fashion that he manages things. Everything is open. Everything is on the table. We're not shy or frightened from from you know challenges and and facing challenges, but it has to be on the table and we'll work it out. Just put things on the table. Let's discuss. Let's find the the, the best or the most optimal solution, and and we'll get it work. And and that's what happened. And I think that, you know, when I joined, I called investors from my term in Teva and then, you know, brainstorm. And people asked me, Protalix, who? Or who are you talking about? Who's this company? Yeah. Are you still alive? We heard about the company back then in 2012. And a lot of, you know, legwork and investor by investor, conference by conference, and and seeing that you know there's no turnaround, there's no change in the share price. To the contrary, it even keeps on deteriorating. And we never gave up. And I think that you know, on the most challenging, difficult times, Joe used to tell me that you know everything pays off at the end. Nothing is in vain, even if you don't see it now. You're going to see it in a month or two or four or five. And eventually, that's what happens. So we got a CRL, and and it's almost a knockout for many companies. It is. And we're very close there uh, yeah, to, to that point. But, mm -hmm. you know, we gathered ourselves together and picked ourselves from, from, from the floor. And we kept on, you know, riding uh, towards the, the approval, obviously, on the financial front, the clinical front, the regulatory front, the partnership with Chiesi that you have to manage along the way. And, and you know, some nervous note holders that we have. And I think that now they're more like at ease. Uh, yeah, back then it was completely different, believe me. Uh, yeah, nevertheless, they were loyal to us and they stood by us. They didn't like, you know, put any hurdles on the way. They knew that we have, you know, enough of our own. And uh, yeah, just a lot of hard work coordinated in a very organized fashion and, and a teamwork. 
Uh, teamwork is not a buzzword. It, it really, at the end of the day, that's what really makes the dream work. For emerging biotechs, scaling the process development and manufacturing of biologic molecules to clinical standards can be a challenging. However, you don't need to go it alone. Don't miss an episode of the Business of Biotech podcast, where we offer insights on regulatory, funding, and other essential topics. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash Emerging Biotech. You, you mentioned some, uh, you, you mentioned leaning into some connections in the investor community that you had made uh, during your days at Teva and, and Brainstorm. Um, what other, I guess, bag, <laughs> what, what other tools maybe did you pull out of your, your bag of tricks that you had learned in CFO positions with those two pri- prior companies um, that sort of helped you uh, steer here at Protalix? I mean, can you point- when I left Teva, it's it's an amazing question, Alila. I left Teva. Yal Deshe, the uh, the CFO back then, told me that when I joined Teva, I joined driving a truck. When I left it, I left like taking off with a Boeing seven four seven. In terms of the knowledge, the expertise, the tools, the instruments, the know how, yeah. my capabilities, you know, personal, professional, everything, and and he was a mentor. I uh, and and I have. I highly respect him for mentoring me. He wasn't shy. He wasn't afraid to let me jump into the water, get wet, get some burns on the way. Yeah, uh, but he accepted it, and it's uh, the learning curve. But uh, he, he let me play. And at the end of the day, I think that I brought to Protalix, both from Teva and obviously also from Brainstorm, going from a giant company like Teva with 57,000 employees, going to Brainstorm, small biotech with like 45, 50 employees, this is like 11 billion back then when we issued the money was $60 billion at Teva going to $150 million market cap, totally different story. You have to adjust, you have to fine tune all the capabilities and whatever you do. I think that what I learned from like both places is A, to be patient. Investor work is a long journey. It's a marathon. It's not like a sprint. Be transparent. I'm getting, even today, Tens of emails every day from investors yelling, cursing, encouraging, and blaming, giving us the credit. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I respect each one of them. I respond. I take the time. I think that at the end of the day, you look them in the eyes and manage the expectations. Be fully transparent. I know that there are companies who are like overpromising and obviously underperforming and underdelivering. Hey, uh, we're not going to just issue a PR just for the sake of pumping the share. We're not there. And that's the reason, you know, when, when investors are writing all kinds of bulletin boards, how come the company is silent, quiet, we don't hear them? If we have nothing to say, we won't say. If we do, we will. And I think that, you know, all those soft skills of working with investors, working with bankers, working with VCs, each one of them has their own interests. Sometimes they are just the opposite of yours. And and but you have to know how to work with them. And at the end of the day, you need to learn the culture, need to learn the, the, the people that you're working with. And don't forget you're representing behind yourself not only a publicly traded company, but the investors who are basically uh, are you know behind this company, and we give them you know utmost respect. Yeah, yeah. 
So that, that's a, you know, you painted a, a great picture of the turnaround story. Now I want to kind of, I want to, I want to do a 180 and, and look forward. And, and there are some challenges uh, on the horizon for Pertalix. One of them being, uh, being in a unique position where you've got two approved products and then you've got a, a bit of a gap in your clinical pipeline and you've, you've got a, I think a phase, a phase one, uh, product in um, severe gout and uh, a preclinical program in nets related diseases. Uh, so tell me from your perspective, what the go forward plan looks like for a company in that position, you know, two, two approved products, uh, two earlier stage clinical programs and sort of this phase two, three gap in the middle. Yeah. So uh it's funny because I had the same discussion early this morning with a reporter here in Israel. And he told me, listen, you're like a one-trick pony. You have like one drug in your pipeline, which is in phase one. The other one is preclinical. Nobody knows if it's going to go to clinics. Mm -hmm. And you have two approved drugs, and that's out of your hands because you don't control commercialization. That's Kiesi and Pfizer. So what's left, you know, in the company? Funny because, you know, we still there's lots of value on the approval, uh, the approved drugs. But you're right. I think that, you know, during the investors event, uh, yeah, we mentioned and that's part of the strategy. We need to fill the gap in order to avoid. And again, we're in the biotech space, clinical trials. God knows how things play out. It can be a very successful one. And we brought evidently two drugs to the finish line. Nevertheless, we have other programs that we shut down and we decided to uh, put on the shelf for now, at least looking for partners uh, to partner on. Uh, um, we are looking actively in the market for the past seven, eight months uh, for assets that will fit the strategy means rare, rare genetic disease. Some, it doesn't have to be you know, based on our platform. Obviously, if it's a um, post-phase one, pre-phase two asset, we're not going to take it like three years back and start from scratch working through or trying to express it through our platform. Uh, yeah, but it has to be something that we have added value there. And we're not just going to buy assets in, I don't know, or rare oncology, something that uh, we have no say there and, and no added value. And we're going to start or gene therapy and we're going to start from scratch. That might happen five, six, seven years down the road after we have, you know, a stable a, a revenue stream from from Chiesi and we're like profitable, maybe you're paying dividends and buybacks or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, at this point, in order to really strengthen the pipeline and, and create value to our shareholders, we're going to be and we are looking for something that fits a strategy, places that we think that we have the competitive advantage in terms of their regulatory you know, expertise, the clinical development and clinical operation experience and expertise in order to really take an asset and, and at least think that we have the ability, the capabilities, and the chances, or most chances, to bring it as close as possible to the finish line. It's interesting. Uh, you, you know, you, we started the conversation talking about the platform, um, plant-based cell expression platform, uh, and and what it's produced, right? The successes that it has spawned. Uh, so you you know you you could easily have a camp at Protalix that considers Protalix a platform company who might scratch their heads and say, well, why on earth would we go? You know, rare disease, rare genetic disease is a it's a great big wide open space. As you mentioned, there are multiple modalities to address it, multiple scientific directions you could take. Um, so you know, there there very well could be. I'm not saying there is, but there could be a camp at Protalix that says, like, why on earth would we, you know, go hunting for a product that we need to plug into our 
culture and infrastructure and 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 machine, you know, clinical and regulatory expertise not notwithstanding, when we have this platform that we should, you know, that's churned out two successes that we should continue to invest in and let's just bank bank on the platform. As I said, I'm not assuming that that's, you know, that there are any, that there's any division uh in in that mindset, but I am I am curious um you know, when you have a company that 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 has a platform and, and you are considering you know, go going to the external market and and doing some drug hunting. How you manage sort of that that balance or that p- potential, I guess, internal conflict. So aid does exist. I have to tell you, it's not okay. we have a division right. or a like, camp. But even you know, as part of the internal discussions, which is by the way, it makes only sense if you have like two approved drugs. Why would you go hunt? You know, hunt outside. So a we have two drugs, and one of them phase one, the other one, you know. Hopefully, it's going to go to clinics towards the end of this year, maybe early next year. There are two other drugs, by the way, which we didn't even mention and reveal, so I'm not going to be able to speak about them because we're a publicly traded company. But mm-hmm. we are working, and they're all based on our platform and system. And it's not that we're giving up on the system or the platform. We're proud, and we're going to keep on developing you know, internally whatever we can. However, you can't just shut your eyes and, and say, oh, let's close the eyes and we don't see what's happening. What's happening is that we have a gap. And the yeah. gap was caused due to the fact that this company never had sufficient means to really pursue and push forward the clinical programs. And many things were put on hold until, and I think it was all responsible and made sense to put everything on hold until we brought, you know, El Fabio to the finish line. Now that, you know, we can turn the lights back on, so to speak, on the research and, and development uh, yeah, divisions, I think that the fact that we have a phase one, it's nice and we believe in it. Otherwise, we wouldn't pursue. But uh, nevertheless, we have a gap. And if we really want to be like time to market and create a value and not rely on a single asset, which is risky in our business, uh, like 99% of the companies or 98 something fail. Mm-hmm. So in order not to be there and uh, not to just celebrate successes, because we also know that in the past, we didn't have successes with all kinds of clinical programs, which is only natural. Uh, yeah, you need to look outside. And it's not that we're giving up on the platform, to the contrary. And we might take something that we will do. First act is going to be using a different platform, the CHO systems. And maybe later on, as lifestyle man, you know, cycle management, although it's like a brand new product, but we might do something on our platform or have whatever we develop internally. So we're going to have... Hopefully, three, four years from now, we're going to have four or five, you know, clinical programs in all kinds of stages. And that's what a um, biotech company at our size they, uh, should strive for. Yeah. What, what does that look like internally right now from a workforce and HR standpoint? It almost sounds like, I mean, you could effectively be running two sort of separate organizations, you know, one who's dedicated to the, the platform and the R&D that's happening there and the, and the you know, to, to be to be named uh, yet unnamed uh, clinical programs that might come out of that uh, in short order, and then another sort of drug hunting, you know, clinical regulatory. Let's let, let's you know let's bring something in and, and move it move it down the pipeline kind of effort. Is is it that way or is it completely integrated? I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm trying to get a sense for how you manage uh, HR personnel and and the um you know the uh, each 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 initiative either separately or sort of intertwined? So I think that the devil's in the details as always. It depends on the asset. If we're going to buy an asset, 
that will come with with personnel. Obviously, that's going to be one thing. If we're just going to buy the S, obviously we'll have to strengthen the the R and D arms, both the R and the D, and and take it from there. It also, also depends on the stage. If it's like a pre phase one or phase one, uh, yeah, it's one thing. Phase two ready, middle phase two, it's a different story. Uh, yeah, not to mention phase three, which is like you know, like seventy percent there. Uh, yeah, so I guess it depends on the asset, depends on the stage. Uh, obviously, we're not going to run two separate, you know, companies or organizations in parallel. Uh, yeah, but the question is to the level of implementation. Uh, yeah, you know, coming from Teva, we acquired companies one after the other. We couldn't even swallow as much as uh, yeah, you know, we bought. Uh, yeah, one would say that the company really choked. Look at the market cap. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but 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 I can I, I can say that you know for small biotech company, uh, it will have to be an integrated effort at the end of the day. So we might have, like, I don't know, chief medical officer, and he is going to run, like, in parallel, like, two big programs, and all the rest are going to be in the um, research uh, phase yet. Uh, and, and you know, at the end of the day, it all has to be integrated because the company has the same pockets, the same bank accounts. The yeah. same goals and uh, yeah, the same shareholders that uh, were really trying to maximize the value for them. Yep. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you with this next one. I'm going to ask you to, I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm going to give you some parameter. I'm going to tell you how you can, I'm going to tell you how I'm not going to allow you to answer. So, so t- I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to go back to 2017 when AL, a younger AL was, was leaving Teva. Um, and, and moving on to brainstorm, as you mentioned, that was a giant adjustment to a, a new and emerging uh, biopharm, a much smaller, much smaller budget. Now, I'm going to ask you to give that younger AL some advice, but I'm not going to allow you to say, work hard, be diligent, be passionate, because we get that about you, AL. We see it. We see it, right? Like, we know that. I'm going to ask you to answer that question thinking more tactically more tactically, maybe more strategically, right? You, you understand where I'm going with it? Yeah, 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 I am. Yeah. Uh, wow, what a question. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, I put you on the spot with that one, but like the, uh, you know, like I, I think I think the audience, I, I think our listeners and, and myself, like we, we can absolutely appreciate the grit, right? The gritty element of the story. But I, I'm I'm hoping you can address this one with like something more, uh, like I said, tactical or strategical, strategic. So, I said I said strategical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so you know, looking back to 2017 retrospectively, and what advice I would have given you know the the young Ariel, I think that like two main things that you know jumps into my mind. The first one: be patient. Don't be like you know an elephant in a Chinese shop. Mm-hmm. Just be patient. Things takes time, and you have to be patient. You have to understand that processes takes time, procedures takes time. Things you know elevate gradually. You're gonna get there. Don't try to push it too hard. Let things play out, and eventually you'll see that you're gonna get there. Which is the first one, obviously. Reddit coming from Teva, everything is like boom, boom, boom. You're just giving the orders. Everything is done. Going yeah. to small biotech, which is challenging, and then going to another one who is facing some significant challenges. Totally different story. I think that you know it's all part of the process. So that's first. And and the second, 
I think that it's not only about getting from here to there. It's not only about, you know, achieving the targets and the goals, but enjoy the ride. Because if you fail to enjoy the ride, A, you're exhausting your power and energy. You wake up like tired every day with zero energy, zero enthusiasm to do your work. And if you really know how to enjoy also the challenges and when you're facing, you know, the downtimes, it's an opportunity to learn and to face it. And at the end of the day, I think that it took me quite some time. I'm not going to tell you that I did it overnight. I'm mm-hmm. far from it. But I think that it's only in the past year or so that I really learned how to really enjoy the ride. And at the end of the day, you can't keep on doing day in, day out the same things, facing the same challenges, working with investors, quarterly reports, and, and financing, and this, and, and regulatory you know, challenges, unless... You really enjoy what you're doing. It's not that I didn't enjoy in the past. I enjoyed it a lot. But, you know, I was always occupied and busy with just get things done, get things done. And if you don't really ride along and enjoy the ride, you can't do it like, you know, forever. And and now I think that I'm in a different spot. Well, I got to ask you a question on that one, on the, on the enjoy the right part. Cause like, you know, you said, well, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed my job. Like there's always been enjoyable things about my job, but then there's like, there's a difference between that and sort of an intentional awareness of joy, right? Like an attention or not, not just awareness, but an, an intentional creation enablement of, of joy. So tell me what, what does AL do uh, to enable, like intentionally enable or create joy in his job is it a is it as simple as like a you know hey let's go in there and and rock some stuff out but have some fun while we're doing it kind of mentality or is it have you implemented certain practices that uh, you find joyful so i think it's both a uh i'm trying you know even during conferences and challenging times you know and and we're shortening every quarter we're shortening the time you know between the end of the quarter and the time that we file the reports mm-hmm. and and i have to say despite the challenges there i think that the ride and also my department they feel it we're like we're facing the challenges together we're working together we have brainstorm like meetings and discussions on top of the uh, weekly calls that we have on the department level. And I think that, you know, brainstorming and being part and showing everybody that we all work together. It's not that I'm the CFO and he's the senior director of finance and the other one is the control. We all work together. We're equal and we're equally like contribute to the to, to this journey. And and so I think that, that that's one thing. Also, you know, in the past when I had a challenge, first thing that came to my mind, how do like I, I, I break it down? I have to like to nail it. And today, A, Okay, let's look around. Let's find out from friends of mine how they like handled it. How can I handle it? Consult with people. It's not a shame. It's not a uh, you know a curse to call people up and say, hey, "Listen, I have this challenge. Can't elaborate too much. A publicly traded company. However, what would you do? Mm-hmm. Had you been in my shoes?" And and I think that part of the learning is part of the joy in in, in this position. Because you have the opportunity, you know, Section 174 to the, uh, you know, U.S. taxation. It's like, it's a nightmare. I, looking even, you know, the big four, they can hardly, you know, understand what's behind it. Or 381, all kinds of crazy rules. At right. the end of the day, <laughs> for me, it's an opportunity 
It's for learning. It's an opportunity to really meet with people, you know, the most senior people at, you know, the big four and other consultants learn during the way. Obviously, yes, part of the conferences, we also have some joy, uh, both Joe and myself. And uh, yeah, we have, you know, all our own tradition while we're in San Francisco, do go to a basketball game and then we nice. go to Broadway shows. And we know also to enjoy the time. You have to have those like breaks. Otherwise, if you're always like nine, like 24 seven, 99.9% focused on the business, I think that at the end of the day, it's less beneficial than also know how to take the downtime, relax, recoup, and then come with fresh eyes and fresh mind. I think that most of the challenges that I went to sleep with after working like almost 20 hours, I woke up next morning fresh. And you know what? I hit it. I had the solution. I had an idea. Or Joe Bashan, our CEO, calls me up. Doesn't matter like days and nights, believe me. It's yeah. worse than being a married couple. And, and he calls me up. He's in Boston. It's like 3 a.m. in the morning. His time. He calls me up. Oh, I think that I have something. That's a statement we should say on the uh, on the earnings day release. Okay, fine. Let's discuss. I think that's part of the joy. Yeah. Very good. That's that that's that's perfect advice. That's great. Go go see a ball game and take those 3 a.m. calls. Um <laughs> what's uh we're gonna wrap things up here. We're running short on time, but I want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit of what's next sort of on the immediate horizon in terms of uh, next steps, milestones for Protalix. I think that the uh, next steps are obviously on the commercial front, working closely with, with Kiesi on the forecast projections, manufacturing, make sure that we have a stable supply uh, for their inventory, build up demand and the market demand. Uh, make sure that we smoothen as much as possible the revenues uh, in a way that they, uh, there aren't going to be too many hiccups on the way, trying also to push Brazil and Pfizer as much as possible. It's out of our hands. Brazil is the government and you know Pfizer is Pfizer. Nevertheless, we can work with them and see where they're at and, and trying to uh, really efficiently manage our workforce and, and production plans. Uh, on the clinical front, obviously, keep on deep diving uh, um, till finding an asset. The right one for us, that we're going to have really the competitive, you know, advantage there. Uh, yeah, and and keep on developing, you know, internally, whatever, whatever we have. Uh, I came here to stay. I didn't come to leave. And I had the opportunity during the past four years, plenty of times, many offers and many you know, opportunities to leave the company. And I, I find this company a very unique one. And not only because of the uh, the approvals and the success, but also culturally and, and the atmosphere in the corridors. And I think that they uh, are going to do everything in our power to make this journey a, a successful, but also a joyful one. Yeah, I love it. Well, I don't think those uh, those those offers coming in from, you know, left, left, right and center are going to slow down anytime soon. Cause you're, you're a rock star. Eh, all. I really enjoy talking with you. I think you're, uh, you're doing a fantastic job. Um, a lot of fun to talk to. I can see the joy. I see the joy there, man. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> I hope we can do this again sometime soon, but, uh, in the meantime, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And have an amazing day. That's Protalix CFO, Al Rubin. 
I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Life Science Connect with the support of Cytiva, which demonstrates its commitment to new and emerging biopharma companies. It's Cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. If you like listening in on conversations with biopharma leaders like AL, subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast, sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Also be sure to leave us a review, let us know how we're doing. And as always, thanks for listening.